as to what a kinah actually is. A kinah is a poetic creation that we just read that reflects a historical event that usually you observed. And a result of that observation, of having seen the events, you are so emotionally struck by these events that you're not able to function normally and rather you have to spontaneously express the, the deepest emotions. That historical event evoked a profound emotional response. And yet, despite the fact that we call it a spontaneous outburst, outburst of emotion, the kinah is a brilliantly crafted poem whose main intention is to have you respond emotionally to the event that that particular author had observed. He wants you to empathize with the event. And Jewish history is all about empathizing. Obviously, the greatest example of that would be Pesach. On Pesach, you're not only supposed to go through rituals, but you want to see yourself as having been somebody who experienced slavery. So through our rituals, we try to re-experience the experience of slavery, and redemption. The kinah is the same. The kinah wants you to feel the pain. This past week, I was told by a very committed person that I don't feel connected to Tisha B'Av. And I'm quite sure that many of you here also don't really feel connected to Tisha B'Av. After all, you might argue it's an event of place 1,935 years ago or 43 years ago, depending on how you begin. And how do we connect to that? And the idea of a kinah is that which is going to bridge the time gap. Through understanding the kinot, you're now going to traverse the time span, and by virtue of this traversal, you're going to be able to be there, vicariously experience it, even a thousand or two thousand years later. Of course, Yemiyahu was the very first person who authored a kinah. 586, before the common era, after Chorban Beit HaMikdash, Yemiyahu having observed, having emotionally participated in all of the death and destruction he had witnessed. Now, of course, he recalls all of this in the last chapters of Yemiyahu. And, of course, he knew the Chorban was coming. He knew the Chorban had to come. There was not any possibility of the Chorban not happening. They are crossed a line. A certain period in one who studies the Miyahu tries to find what is the line. Because in the early chapters of the Miyahu, it's all an im statement. Im. If you continue this pathway, you'll be destroyed. But if you don't, you'll be able to salvage yourselves. And yet at a certain point, when Borei Olam tells you beyond the 15th chapter, don't pray for them any longer. And at that point in time, one senses that the dyes would have been cast and there was no hope for this people. And as we'll see in the commentary of Rabbi Soloveitchik, we'll try to elaborate as to why at that point in time was there no longer any help. And yet, 
though Yirmiyahu experienced the Hurban ben Amikdash and empathized very deeply with all that the people had experienced, his own children he views as having been devastated, destroyed. For Yirmiyahu, something more was necessary. Something that would attempt to have others emote with him and feel the feelings that he felt. And therefore, Yirmiyahu had to write something more than simply the book of Yirmiyahu. And that more is? Migilat Echa. Correct. Migilat Echa is the primary source as to what a kinah was really all about. And the primary intention of Echa is not to stir your mind, but rather to move your heart. He wants you, through the various phrases that he uses, to empathize so deeply, and therefore the themes have to be, keyword, universal themes. When he talks about, and he cries out to God and says, God, how is it that women will cook their children out of a need for hunger? So oh, anybody that sees, hears this kind of an imagery has to be moved to tears because it's a universal experience that if a woman cooks her child because she's so famished from ra'av, then one feels emotionally attached to that situation itself. So the kina of Yirmiyahu, of Echa, was meant to bridge the gap of time. And he realized that only by our connection to the event itself would be able to survive the Galut itself. Now, these kinot, meant to stimulate emotions, are going to be profound creations with all kinds of allusions to other biblical books, to other midrashim, to other concepts and ideas. And it's very difficult, therefore, for one to understand the kinot. The Hebrew is poetic Hebrew. Unless you have a good Google, you're not going to be able to really figure out exactly what it's really all about. So the commentary helps to explain the explicit and the implicit emotions and bring them closer to the surface itself. And the kinot that the Ashkenazim have celebrated is the kinot of Rabbi El-Ghazar HaKalir, Kalir, who is one of the most eloquent of all those who wrote the kinot, have been universally adopted by the Ashkenazic community and, of course, recited on Shabi'av, along with other kinot as well. But difficult to understand, and therefore we need commentary. And the most eloquent commentary on this kinot is that of Rabbi Soloveitchik, who universalizes the message of pain and suffering as experienced and expressed in these kinot itself. Rabbi Soloveitchik would sit for six, seven, and eight hours at a time. With many of us there who were one-third of his age at the time, and we were tired and hungry, he would explain these kinot spontaneously every year. Is one of the high points of living in Boston that on Tisha B'Av, you sat in the Maimonides Auditorium and he would sit and just explain and explain and explain all of the concepts, ideas, thoughts, values in the kinot itself. It was a mesmerizing experience. We will take some selections from these kinot and utilize Rabbi Salvechik's commentary to try to understand them to try to understand more profoundly the loss of the Beit HaMikdash itself. And as well, 
should not be surprising to you that one of the primary themes of Kinot is, this is too hard for anybody to understand, I'm sure nobody will guess it, so I'll tell it to you. Somebody want to hazard a guess? The primary theme, one of the primary themes necessary in the Kinot is? Rhythm. Rhythm is not a theme. It's a style. Emotion I got. I said it 12 times. No, a philosophy of Jewish history. Now, why is that so important to the author of the Kina? He wants you to understand this primary, significant, absolutely important notion that there is a philosophy of Jewish history. Why is that so important? Ronnie Hirsch, why is it so important? You know the answer to this question. And you can only learn there's going to be... Get over here. No, 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 you can't sit over there. I can't turn around. Just join the group. No, 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 the back row, the back row, the back row. You can't... Okay. Because I'm going to explain that. Great question, exactly. Let's actually ask you that question. What do I mean by philosophy of Jewish history? It means that Jewish history has direction and purpose. That these are not random events. But rather, these events took place that he's going to cry over is part of a broader framework, a part of the absolute creator's plan to history. So, Michael? Yes, exactly. Because once you see this and you understand the dynamics of Jewish history, then I understand why this took place, and then there could be a, better, a change. It's not random. Yivchan Etzad and, and Hadrian and Aspasianos and Vespian and all this, they're not random people who just happen to destroy the Ben-Hamikdash. It's part of a plan that we have to learn from and ultimately resolve by virtue of understanding the Jewish philosophy of, <coughs> of history. <coughs> if one were to... <coughs> if one were to try to state for us what's the beginning of Jewish history? No, 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 no. As my grandson says. Lo, 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 lo. Creation is a good guess, but actually it's not, there's no history in creation. Rather, Gan Eden. Gan Eden is the model. Gan Eden was the harmonious, idyllic experience of man and woman where everything is tranquil, everything is wonderful, everything, every need you have is provided for, but then there is transgression, consequences to your transgression, the authority of Gan Eden, and what's the ultimate culmination of history? Back to Gan Eden, known as the Messianic Era. So we're going from Gan Eden of harmony, tranquility, of complete understanding of man to woman, woman to man, and going back to ultimately experience Yimota Mashiach, wherein one finds, again, tranquility and harmony in the world itself. And as we go along, we'll see how Osadech expands upon this notion as we find it in the keynote itself. The first kina that we're going to mention is one which we don't have and we don't recite, but Sada Badesh Kinah, I mean, it's the 10th Kinah. And over here, the Baala Kinah makes the point, and Rabbi Soloveitchik expands upon this point, and try to figure out what you think his commentary will involve. The Kinah itself says the following. It begins, It goes on on, so it comes to a line where he says, Ki chilaya huyavti kedor hamabul. Ki chilaya 
Hoyavti Kedor Hamabul. So what does that mean, first of all, literally? For we des- deserved extinction no less than a generation of the flood. We deserved extinction, Gichelaya extinction, Hoyavti. I was guilty of transgression and therefore I deserved complete total extinction, Kedor Hamabul. Now, what do you find perplexing about this phrase? Certainly not the first part of the phrase. We were guilty of transgression. We merited extinction. How do we, in Jewish history, frame that response to tragedy? We call it, it's known throughout all the literature as, the response that indicates guilt, but how do we say it in Hebrew? (laughs) Only if you're a... uh, a mother, <laughs> do you feel good? No. No, mipnei hata enu. Made famous, of course, by, we say it all the time. Mipnei hata enu glume atzeru. In the Musaf, or Roshchot, etc. Mipnei hata because of our sins, we were punished. And therefore, we understand this as part of Jewish history, that we are responsible, and there are consequences for that which we have done. So, of course, this is not a surprising statement. Torah teaches this ongoingly, beginning with Gan Ayadin, where they sinned and therefore had to be expelled from Gan Eden, and ongoing through the head of the Mabul, the flood, and Sodoma Amorah, it's the same message again and again and again. You are responsible for your actions, and there are consequences to be paid if you transgress. So this notion of Nechata'enu is deeply ingrained in the national psyche. So now, to expand upon this for a moment, if one experiences a Holocaust, and again, one can never fully understand the dynamics of the Holocaust. You've seen the moves, you read the books. Each time you should be horrified by what took place. And the rabbis are expected to explain, how does that make sense to anybody? So, the classic initial response is, we sinned. So what would be the next question? What sin? What do we do? So now you have interesting Machlokot, amongst the rabbis themselves, whereas Satma would say that what was the sin? Zionism. Very good. Satma would say it's Zionism. On the other hand, the religious Zionists would say, what was the sin? Not going to Israel. Not going to Israel. And of course, everybody will blame the reform movement having begun in 1840 in Germany. That must have been the sin that brought about the Holocaust. And yet when you ask and further plumb the, that answer, then why did most of the German Jews escape? Up to 1930, 1940, they were allowed to escape. They left. But the Polish Jews and Ukrainian Jews, Poland had 2.9 million Jews there, and 2% survived? 2% perhaps survived? They paid a bigger price, and that was the, what was known as the Yerushalayim of Europe. It was a beautiful place. Every block had a synagogue, had a kolel, had people studying, people learning and you had a wonderful Jewish experience in Poland, that was destroyed more than Germany? Not Bifem. It doesn't make sense. So the Mnechata'enu explanation, which is the classic explanation, didn't seem to satisfy many. Because you really couldn't figure out what was the transgression that we did. And therefore, other attempts (coughs) were made. Can anybody think of how else would you explain the Holocaust? One explanation would be Martin Buber's explanation, Hester Panim. We study about Hester Panim 
in the Torah itself, wherein something provokes Bore Olam to cover his face and remove himself from the historical arena. And then, as the Pesukim in Devarim itself tell us, then you're going to be experience punishment after punishment, horrifying situations because you're not any longer shielded by divine protection. Hester Panim. And Martin Buba has an entire book on this called The Eclipse of God. When does God eclipse himself from the human arena? Now, if you were to study all the 31 places in Tanakh where Sefanim appears, you can, in fact, find a common theme. You can, find, in fact, find out what causes Borei Olam to eclipse himself from the human arena. Not for now. If you want to know more about it, you can read my graduate school paper on it, and you'll find out this trans-biblical analysis of what Yisrael Panim is really all about. But that was only one response. Yisrael was one. Yisrael Panim was another. Can anybody think of another one that was mentioned? Yisrael Panim? Perhaps. Because how else could you explain the Holocaust other than with a complete eclipse of God? Yisrael doesn't really work well enough. So those two weren't good enough. Another one. Classic one. Yeah. I don't think you want to discuss that. Unless you... Especially not... On the shop, yeah, right. Well, I can't say it. It's bursting forth from you. It's not his idea. It's a Kabbalistic idea. What do you really think that you have an insight to his mind? What do you really think? You just said. What do you really think? Right, all those million and a half children that were burnt alive and shot and crushed. I'm not saying you are, but just state his opinion. All of those Nishamot deserve this punishment because of some transgression they did in an earlier life. Gilgul Nishamot is a very common Kabbalistic theme that there is a resurrection of souls in other bodies, right? And therefore, they deserve what they got because that. Now, that's his attempt at explaining the Holocaust. Kabbalistic, famous, made famous when? Giru Sefarad. Giru Sefarad was a devastating blow to the Jewish people, so it was made famous in that particular era of time when Kabbalah was rampant, rampant and philosophy was actually, the rational philosophy was actually thrown by the wayside, and now everybody can only explain this horrible Horban of Giru Sefarad by Gugul Neshamot. Good. Okay, that's certainly an opinion that is out there that Hamad quoted. Correct. But we won't go into that. Correct. What else could one say? What else could one say? Hester Panim. Hester Panim. Gun Shemot, one could say? So why would the Jewish people be punished for the lack of rabbinic foresight? Well, it's, so we, but we did pay a price for that. But how does that explain why Hashem did this? Okay, good. So one might want to say that, okay, that fits in well, that it could be free will. The free will defense is the most famous of all the both secular and religious philosophers to say that God's not involved. Nothing to do with Bore Olam. This is free will. 
Hitler, human beings are given. And it's interesting that Rabbi Berkowitz, Eliza Berkowitz, in one of the most profound of books called Faith After the Holocaust, it's a book that one should certainly read, he discusses the free will defense, and he sees that as explaining, and he quotes the very famous Gemara with Rabbi Akiva protests, the angels protest, Rabbi Akiva's horrifying situation. His skin is torn with combs of steel by the Romans. Daf Samech talks about that issue, Asar HaGemachut, and Rabbi Akiva is tortured, and the angels complain, and what, are the, what is their famous phrase? Zotuchra, Zotuchra, this is a word for saying Torah, and the answer is, Borei Olam says, Shtok, quiet, if not, I will revert the heavens and earth back to Toho Vavohu. Why Toho Vavohu? Because if you don't have free will, then I have a different world. So one of the questions that philosophers ask is, could Borei Olam have created a better world? Or is this the best of all possible worlds? And who, of course, is the most famous philosopher who speaks about the best of all possible worlds? You should know this. Sorry? Well, he laughed at it, actually. It's Leibniz. Leibniz, who invented the calculus, brilliant mind, thought of this as the best of all possible worlds. And Voltaire, very good. Voltaire, in which play? Which play did Voltaire write about this? Candy. Candy. Very, you're amazing. That's really pretty good. Get over here. I mean, I don't think I would get a thousand to one that anybody would know that. But it is Candide, and it's the best. And who? This is really this thousand dollars. Who's the main character in Candide? Everybody does nowadays. I can't win. He doesn't know how to use Google. He's like me. The answer is Pangloss. Pangloss is the famous character in Candide, wherein Voltaire is laughing at Leibniz's famous philosophy. It's the best of all But that really is a serious philosophical option. Is this the best world, given free will? Is free will a positive or a negative? It's a positive. You want to have free will. Without free will, we're, not, we're robots. We're, we're, we're not human beings. So given free will, is the best of all possible worlds. And many philosophers will argue that. Yeah. I suffer. With, with, with evil, exactly. Right, very good. <coughs> Meaning more, more specifically, while God waits for you to do Teshuvah, I pay a price. He may kick me again, harm me because I'm waiting for him. So, so that could be part of it. Just very quickly, because I don't want to elaborate too much on this, the other possible answers are, is the answer of the suffering servant. Suffering servant is in Ishaya Nun Gimel. That, and that, of course, has been made famous by Yeshu. Right. But he got it from us. He read the script and acted it out. People were amazed. How could Yeshu not be true? Look, he just did exactly what happened. Hello, he just read the script and played it out. He knew Yeshaya, but he knew Yeshaya Nun Gimel. So that's what happened. He read the script and he played it out and he became the Mashiach. He changed human history because of that. It was also surprising. But of course, the Christians always say how that predated and that showed us how Yeshua is the true Messiah. And Jews argued the point, what I'm arguing now, and were killed for that point. Suffered terribly because they said, what did Yeshua do? He read the script and he played it out. He had to suffer in order to become the Mashiach. So it says. So what is the concept, non-Christologically speaking, what's the Jewish concept of suffering servant that we, sorry? 
well, let's go down a bit It doesn't quote that pasuk in that context. No, it just means that we're the lightning rod for evil in the world, that they try out their evil on us, and that we pay a price of being omnifhat. We're chosen to teach them. We didn't teach them, perhaps, well enough, and we're going to pay the price for that. And it's interesting how over the last two and a half thousand years, indeed, we do pay a lot of prices. And even today's world, Israel lambasted, UN, ongoingly, condemned in South Africa for its apartheid practices. I mean, the height of hypocrisy, and it was always us. So that's called the suffering servant. And finally, one of the... Yeah, Why is it always us? Why do we have... Dep- it, depends, it depends what, what philosophy you believe in. Because <coughs> we're, we're chosen to bear that burden. Exactly, correct. But you pay a price for doing your job. That's correct. Exactly. That could be it. Correct. That's what it says. Sorry? Right. Exactly. Correct. Perhaps one of the most profound, and this is the last point on this issue because I want to go ahead, one of the most profound of responses is the opposite of Mibne Hata'enu, which is what? What's the opposite of Mibne Hata'enu? Not exactly. But rather, we didn't sin. And that was called the theology of protest, where we're going to protest the Borei Olam that we are unjustly punished, and we don't get it. We want to demand an answer why we punish. So who's the first protester? Abraham. Very good. Abraham was the first protester in saying, God, I demand justice. And I demand an objective justice. You are bound by justice. It's not just because you said so. It's, you said so because it's just. Everybody understand? That's, very, that's a very famous question that Plato wrote in which of his dialogues? Gotcha. Euthyphro. In Euthyphro, Plato raised this very important moral question. Is something just because God said so? Does God say so because it's just? And you obviously understand the implications of both of these opinions. So Abraham teaches us that the fact that Borei Olam said so means it's objectively just. And the proof is from Ashok Mishpat that we, understand, we have to understand God's system of justice, and therefore, Abraham protests. Who else protested in Jewish, in Jewish literature? Eov, of course. Eov said, I didn't sin, I didn't sin, I didn't sin. In Rabbi Soloveitchik's very uh, profound essay called Kodi Dofik, he does point to Eov as having transgressed. Not for now, it's another class, but it's fascinating the way he sees Eov very differently than I always saw Eov as this innocent bystander, and yet he pays a very serious price for that, but he wasn't so innocent according to Rabbi Soloveitchik. Well, that's another, another situation. Who else protested? One second. You're not in protest of the Alps. Joseph says, kill, the heck, kill them. You're not says, they don't... Sorry? Right, but, it, but no, it's the opposite of that. Right, okay, good. Anybody else? Yirmiyahu, of course, protests. Moshe does not really protest in Torah itself. Moshe protests in the Gemara Vesechet Berachot Av Zayin. Berachot Av Zayin, Amud Aleph, sorry? He protested, his, his protest recorded in the Gemara, not in the Peshut Hashem Mikra. In the Peshut Hashem Mikra, it's only Abraham, Eyov, Yirmiyahu, of course, chapter 12, I think it is, Siddiqat Hashem, Ki'ariv Elecha, I will fight with you about these issues. Siddiqat Hashem, Ki'ariv Elecha, I'm going to fight with you. Lama Derech Shashem Salecha. He says, why the, why am I suffering, why are the evil people going free? It doesn't make sense. And so, who else? Yirmiyahu says that? Okay, good. Yes. But it's really Habakkuk. Habakkuk is one who, again, was somebody who protested, one might say even violently, 
I will stand by my watch. It's one of those 15 examples where the rabbis changed the text because it was too harsh. What's he going to answer on my rebuke? I am rebuking God, protesting. What was his protest all about? God, I don't understand it. You devastate and are able to overwhelm Ashur, who killed the ten northern tribes, devastated the 722. What came in its place? Apsha Babel. It was worse than Ashur. They destroyed us more so. So I'm complaining. Habakkuk was around 612 before the common era. And he saw the rise of Babel, who's going to devastate and destroy the Jewish people. So he protested more so and more intensely in the phrase of Tochahti, my rebuke. I'm rebuking God for doing this. So that theology of protest has been invoked in numerous examples throughout Jewish history. In one of the most famous of this, anybody ever see the, about 25 years ago, the um, Broadway play, name was? Isa Is Hasid Haya. Ish Hasid Haya. Yeah, it was really off. And we, off Broadway? When I, I acted in it. I acted in it, actually. When we wanted to get kids excited about religion in Africa, that's the play that we acted out. I was, uh, what was I? I was, I was, uh, Lama, I was the, uh, I was a Shlomazel. Yeah, I was a Shlomazel there. And in it itself, there's one very moving scene where Rav Levi of Berdachev experiences it's, it's now on, uh, it's really very, when you, when you empathize, you think about it, it's very moving, it's very, it's very, very real. And, and I, I don't know why, but it, it moves me this very day, where it is Yom Kippur, and the, uh, the uh, milkman didn't come to shul. And Rav Levi is very upset, why didn't he come to shul to Yom Kippur? So finally comes three hours late to, to, on Yom Kippur, and he's saying, why don't you come to shul? Why don't you come to shul? I don't, I, how can we pray without you? Why don't you come to shul? And he says, Rebbe, I couldn't, I couldn't pray this year. Why couldn't you pray? My daughter was raped. I can't pray to God when my daughter is raped, and I can't do this anymore, and I, and I refuse to pray to Hashem on Yom Kippur. Rebbe Levi takes him by the lapels and shakes him. He says to him, you could have brought Mashiach with that complaint. With that protest against Bode Olam, feeling the suffering, the, the horror story of his daughter being raped by a Russian Cossack, is what Rav Levi said, you could have brought Mashiach with that complaint. Protest, bring Mashiach. And he didn't. He didn't bring Mashiach. So that is the epitome of theology of protest, protesting what happened. So, Nehat is really the classic one of all of these. And of course, that is <coughs> the one... <coughs> <coughs> That's the one that is emphasized by Yirmiyahu. Although, if you read Echa very carefully, you have a theology of protest there as well. When he says, Tavahta velo hamalta. And you have to analyze that in the second and third chapters, where this comes to a head. Prior to that, he does, of course, accept guilt, responsibility. We sinned. So that is throughout all of Yirmiyahu. He knows that. But when he says something like, the woman cooked their children. Why didn't you have compassion? That's, one could see that as protest as well. So in Echa, not in his book of Navi, but in Echa does seem to emphasize and so do all of the Paitainim. So Rabbi Azel Khalil over here states in the first part of his piyut, he 
I deserved extinction. But what's the key phrase that Rabbi Salvechik is going to speak about? Kedor Hamabul. Kedor Hamabul is a very perplexing phrase. We deserved absolute extinction as the generation of the flood itself. So the first question is, why is it so perplexing? Yeah. There's no future. Right. So, so, that, so it's very strange. Right. It's very strange that that the, that the Khalid would say that. Would say we deserve absolute total extinction. We. What's more surprising. <coughs> right. That's maybe that's more surprising. Hold on. <coughs> right. Okay, so hold on to that for a second. Hold on a second. But why is it surprising? Because nowhere in any prophetic literature or in rabbinic literature do you find that notion. That we were that evil and that deserving of total, dis- total extinction. So it's interesting that the Khalil over here creates this new theological category that we, do, we deserved total extermination as the Hamabul itself. So you wonder, what's the implications? What was the Khalil... <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. What is the what are the implications of the statement? So Horban should have been absolute total as the Mabul itself. Now what else can you think of when you think about the analogy that we are like Dorha Mabul? What would come to mind? Perhaps that our transgression was the same as Dorha Mabul. So what was our what was the transgression of Dorha Dur- Mabul? Hamas. And how do we understand the word Hamas? Now, of course, Rashi is very interesting over here because Rashi, according to Gemara itself, tells you it's Gezel, that there was a complete lawlessness. And we could almost understand, but I don't think really understand, but almost understand why complete total lawlessness would bring about a Mabul. Because we could correct lawlessness. Get a person who's stronger and bigger and he'll stop lawlessness. Rather, when you transbibicize the word Hamas, the book of Yeshayahu, you see that Hamas in Perekeh is first you see Omrim Lara Atov Latov Ra. What does that mean? Reversal of values. When you ha- you epitomize the evil value, I'd say that's the good value. And again, it's not so hard to understand because we see that in the Nazis. The Nazis would say it was good to kill a Jew and bad to save a Jew. So that's a reversal of values. And when your subjective values of good and evil become objective in your mind, and you see this is the truth, this is the absolute truth, there's no change. You cannot change that person because he's doing good. Yeah. Right. So you're saying that's, a, that's unnatural. Well, can't say, can't say you define natural law, but it's not so simple. It's a 2,000 years of philosophy of what natural law really means, but okay. Survive? What do you mean? Of Hamas, you might say. Okay, good. Okay, I, I could see that as well. So once you take that evil value of sacrificing a child, child sacrifice, 
and you say that's a good, you're a martyr, you will gain Ulam Haba by virtue of this, then of course that would be as well, a good manifestation of this as well. So now the interesting question would be, and this is not from Rabbi Soloveitchik, but just thinking out loud, if they're guilty of the Don Hamabul, as he points out over here, of Hamas, a reversal of values, <clears throat> and the question would be over here, does Yirmiyahu in any which way see that as their transgression? So when we study the seventh chapter of Yirmiyahu, you do find a reversal of values. As, for example, what? The last four Pesukim of the Pedic itself talks about child sacrifice, Asherlotiviti. Why is that so horrifying? Because they said that Borei Olam, God himself, wants child sacrifice, which should be so alien to us. How could anybody ever think that God would want child sacrifice? That's exactly the point of the Akedah. God does not want child sacrifice. The last lines of the Akedah prove God says, don't do this. I don't need child sacrifice. So it's a revolutionary concept and thought in that period of time where we believe that God does want child sacrifice. Do you want blessing the rest of your children? Sacrifice your best and your brightest. Bobby, sorry. Blessing and your brightest, get sacrificed, and the rest of the kids are all blessed because of that. So you want that blessing. You want to feel so be productive? Sacrifice your best kid. So that's child sacrifice. So they attribute to Hashem that you should, we want, you want child sacrifice. So the last chapter, last verses of this chapter 7 speaks of this, as well as believing that ritual atones for the ethical lapses. They would transgress in all kinds of ways. That you would steal, you'd kill, commit adultery. And come to Benavikdash, and say, We're fine, we're wonderful, we're great. Because I brought a sacrifice. Equivalent, as I often point out, that you transgress in all kinds of ways throughout the entire year. You come and you buy expensive aliyah. You buy kal nidre. And everybody celebrates you buy kal nidre, but you're a corrupt individual. You're a corrupt individual. You should be buying kal nidre. But we don't see that. The person believes that the ritual buying of... <laughs> That's the answer. <laughs> right. Don't tell the committee. Right. So in this situation, that ritualization of ethics, where you believe that ritual atones for ethics, is, could be the reversal of what ritual is really all about. So Yirmiyahu does complain about that. So Hamas would be appropriate over here. But rather, Rabbi Salavechik wants something a little bit different. And he says that this Kedot HaMabul refers to the punishment, the absolute extinction of the Jewish people. And yet, he says to us over here, that using the concept of substitution, meaning that Borei Olam had destroyed Hurban ben Amikdash rather than us. We should have been destroyed. We were that evil. We did reverse all our values, he might have said. And then on the other hand, there is what's known in Amos as Sherit Peleta, a saving remnant. So rather than us, Ben Amikdash absorbed all of that punishment. The throne of Borei Olam was devastated, Borei Olam's throne himself, and this sacrificial atonement, which does, of course, sound like Sina Mishtaleach, where we send all of our transgressions to the Midbar. And this sacrificial atonement, substitution, was experienced, which is a manifestation of Chastor Shel Makom. God's kindness that he was willing to be shamed and embarrassed by the Chorban rather than destroying us physically. So the Benamakdash was substituted for us because we should have been punished absolutely totally as a Rabul, but we were not. That's Chesed Shel HaKadosh Baruch and that is elaborated upon as saying to us that though we may deserve punishment, the berit is eternal. No matter how much we transgress, whatever we do, the berit, the covenant, is eternal. Bure Olam will always preserve us. 
So now, Rabbi Soloveitchik goes one step further, and he always tries, and always in fact does, root every concept that he has in a halachic statement. For him, any philosophical approach which is not rooted in halacha is invalid. Halacha is our philosophy of life itself. So here he says that this statement explains the perplexing halacha that on Tisha B'Av, after Hatzot, what happens to our avilut? It's mitigated, it's lessened, it's quasi-avilut. So he asks the question, why should the avilut become mitigated when, rather, Benavdash is still burning? So the tenth day, Benavdash is still burning. So why does our avilut become mitigated? Why is it less rather than more? How is it less? Number one, we no longer sit on the floor. Number two, we say, Nahim and Minha. Number three, we say, <clears throat> we also put on tefillin in Minha, Zashkenazim, to come to Shahan tefillin. So that's a symbol of joy itself. We say Tetkabal. We didn't say Tetkabal tonight, those of you who noticed it. You don't say Tetkabal tonight or tomorrow, Shachari. We say it in Minha itself. So all of this, while Ben Atash is burning to a crisp. So the question over here is, why? So Rabbi Salvechik says that Shabbat is not only simply a day of punishment, destruction, and mourning. <coughs> it's also a day of chesed, and that God was able to substitute a bit of dust for us, and therefore, and therefore, we should recognize the chesed of Borei Olam, that it was Ben Avdash destroyed, and not us. Very quickly, give me five or seven more minutes, and I'll finish. Another kinah that we have, that we share with Ashkenazim, also, which will sound very familiar to you. The 31st Kina in their liturgy, but we say tomorrow, it's a very interesting statement, brilliantly conceived of, unknown author, but it's written by a Sfaradi, and this is a <coughs> Kina based on contrast. So what's it stating? libi. <laughs> So everybody remembers that. And it has 15 or 16 different paragraphs all about all the positives of Yerushalayim, all the negatives are from Yerushalayim. So we all know that Kinah. But it's interesting because when you read through it, so make a couple of points. He does not make this point. But the opening phrase itself should be reflected to you. Ash tukad bekirbi is the opening phrase. A fire was lit within me when I left Egypt. When I think about Egypt, when I think about leaving Egypt, I think of this fire. So what fire was there in Egypt? What fire was there after Egypt? Something. How does this make sense? Sorry? Okay, good. So I first thought of That's in Vayikra. And nothing to do with Yitzhak Mitzrayim whatsoever. So I thought of that, but I threw it out. So you're thrown out right now. No, 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 no. Where is that fire, a prominent part of, let's say, uh, the burning bush? Okay, that's, I like that. I didn't think of the egg, because this is positive, but rather. And on ish, right. That when they left Egypt, you had an ish that led them by day, by night, and a cloud by day. Good. So that would be good. I thought of that. I it's a very good answer, but it didn't work. Why? It says Bekirbi. That's what we're talking about. Sorry. She's better. 
Right, so those two I had, but it's not tukad bekir bi. Beginning within, within himself. So what does it mean? A fire burned within me. That's Midrash. Sorry. I love Midrash, but not tonight. Sorry. Where do you find a fire burning within a person? You should know this. Who? You're too romantic. Yes, in Miyahu. What does Miyahu say? What is the third of... It was. What is the it referring to over here? The Nebuah. Now, we have very few descriptions of what Nebuah is really all about. There are two, actually. In all of Tanakh, you have two descriptions of what Nebuah is really all about. The first is in Miao. second is Daniel. Daniel, when he describes his experience of Nebuah prophecy, he explains and describes he was thrown to the ground, he's petrified, the fear overcomes him, his skin stands as nails. What is that referring to? Goosebumps. Goosebumps. He's feeling petrified, afraid of this. And in Yimya's case, when he talks about this issue, <clears throat> he says, It is, and the word in our phrase says, so this might be a double entendre where he's saying that in Egypt, and he's using a Miao's phrase, translating it to Mitzrayim to show how excited it was. But Yimiao is very negative. But it was in my heart as a burning fire. I couldn't contain it. It's tied up in my bones. And I'm I said I want to put this out. I can't. He was forced to prophesy. There's no way you cannot prophesy when you're chosen to be a Navi to be a prophet. So that's the first. <clears throat> The kinim a'ira leman askira. The rhyming poetry over here is magnificent. And then he says, and this is what Rabbi comments on, Az yashir Moshe, shi lo yinasheh v'setim yimisrayim. Which means, then Moshe sang a shi lo yinasheh, a song that will never be forgotten. And of course, the flip side of that is, by konen yinmiyah, yinmiyah had a kinah, v'nahah nehi niyah. And again, the poetry, the rhyming phrases over here are just magnificent. So Yirmiyahu lamented and cried and wailed when he left Yerushalayim. So what's the perplexing phrase over here? The perplexing phrase here is, Ashin Moshe, Shilo Yinasheh. What do you mean by that? Why isn't it Shilo Yinasheh? So the answer is, you all know this, by the way. Everybody knows this. Very famous Rashi on Ashin Moshe, Charles. When you studied this at YU, great place to learn, that some people didn't graduate, they left early. It's very famous. Very famous. I'm glad you told me it's very famous. The Michilta first quotes it, and then as she quotes the Michilta, that's in the future tense. As Yashir Moshe. This is the song the Mashiach, that they're going to sing when the Mashiach comes. Michilta. It's Midrash Halakha. Michilta quotes it. That's Midrash Halakha, not Midrash He's Midrash I'm Midrash Halakha. Very different. <laughs> Very different. So the Michalta quotes that because it's the future tense that Moshe sang this, but sang it as an unforgettable song. When Mashiach comes, it's going to be also the song of the Mashiach. So this song itself, <clears throat> which was sung then, when the, then when Moshe they left Egypt, is also going to be sung with Mashiach. So therefore, it's an unforgettable song. Geulah past equals Geulah future. On the other hand, one would never say that about Yirmiyahu. He has about a song of destruction. So we want to pray that destruction is over. Past tense. 
It was, will not be again. So Moshe's song is a song that will be never forgot, that will say again when the Shia comes. Good. Furthermore, here the author, unknown, strikingly characterizes in a few lines below this, The anger of God rested upon me as a cloud. Now, why should that evoke a comment by Rabbi Soloveitchik? Again, the anger, the rage of Bore Olam, rested upon me as a cloud. Yeah? Exactly. Very good. So very good. So often, we, or most often, we always see this term of Anan and Shekhinah as a positive, protective influence, as we have in Shemot Yud Gimel, Shemot Lamedal, no time right now to look up these sources, but he quotes these sources, says that Anan is always viewed positively and protective and a, mistake, and a positive manifestation of Shekhinah itself. And yet, Rabbi Salvechik points out, without sourcing, so I had to find the source for this, without sourcing, that it also could be a sign which separates man from God himself. So, again, the Rav does not tell us where the Anan is viewed negatively, as that which separates us from him. So can anybody think of a source where the Anan is viewed as separating? Vakasha. What time? What's the Vakasha? Very good. I just saw that. As we read in the in the Echa, which I just noticed it now, very good that you've seen that. Pasuk Mem Dalid, Mem Dalid and Perek Gimel. He says exactly that. Sakota ba'af patelifenu haragta lohamalta sakota be'anan lach. You've covered you've covered be'anan with a cloud, and therefore tefillah cannot be pronounced. One of the reasons that the rabbis give for not saying Tzitkabal is because of this pasuk of Ma'avot Tefillah. Tefillah could not go through the cloud, so to speak. But I thought of something different. So I think that's an excellent source for this. What I thought of is very famous pasuk in Melachim Aleph, Perek Het. What is Melachim Aleph, Perek Het all about? Jacob. You want to write the Perek for homework? What's it about? It's Binyan Ben Amikdash. Shlomo's building, and how does he open his prayer? Hashem Amar Lishkon Ba'arafel. God had always said, I want to dwell in deepest darkness. Arafel is a cloud. I am going to dwell in deepest darkness. That's separating us. And now, Shlomo, and again, no time to look it up, but once you look it up, Shlomo is saying, I am going to draw out Borei Olam from that cloud of darkness to 
respond to our tefillot in Ben HaMikdash itself. So that would seem to be a very negative but a clear reference that there's a separation between Borei Olam and the human being at certain points. So that seems to be where Borei Olam is eclipsed, his third panim removed. But in that <coughs> context, in that context, there's nothing negative. We're not being punished for anything. He said by Nim and Devarim and throughout Tehillim and other places <coughs> is always negative. He said by Nim. This is not. Simply, why does Shemur say this is a good question? Why say, God said I'm going to dwell in deepest darkness. Where did he get that from? That's an interesting question. Now Shemur says it and of course Ben HaMikdash is meant to remove that particular cloud. But Selech further points out and interestingly, that the opening of that statement is Beti Hitkonen Veshachan Heanan. I established my bayit, the Mishkan, the Mikdash, and Shachan Heanan. Vahamat El Shachena, if the anger of God dwelled, I left you in Shalim, I like Kaanana, difference between Kaanan and Kaanana, male and female. The positive context is the male, Haanan, and the author here uses the feminine, Anana, which I don't know if it's biblical. It doesn't, doesn't ring a bell. It's actually biblical, where they use the feminine form of Anan. So perhaps <coughs> the author used the feminine form because he wanted to emphasize how striking an image this actually is. Therefore, change the form from Anan to Anana. Good. Two more points in this particular issue. Of here. But again, there are many points that Rabbi Salvation speaks about. In the fifth Pasuk, the Gan Shamayim Umitsur Mayim. The heavenly harvest of vegetation. Umitsur Mayim refers to what? Mitsur Mayim, Moshe Rabbeinu, Mitsutim Yisraim, Moshe Rabbeinu hits rock. Now the opposite, when you left your slime, La'ana Umnomim, poison and bitterness, Umayim Hamarim. What does Mayim Hamarim mean? Who's referring to? To? Who had more? Sota. Good. Okay, Sota. So I would use Sota as my answer to this over here. And here's very fascinating because often those who prostitute themselves after Abu Dazara are viewed as wayward people who transgress. And here, Rabbi Sartre doesn't mention this, but I seem to remember this. In chapter 4 of Yirmiyahu, you have a very striking image related to this issue over here as well. Let's see over here. Um, chapter 3. Lemor. Of course, it's very striking that Yirmiyahu begins a chapter with the word as follows. Should not, you know, what, what, what preceded it? So all the commentaries are trying to explain why start with Lemor. Lemor means as follows. What as follows what? You didn't say anything yet. But that's not important. Listen to this halachic statement and tell me what's wrong with it. Hen yishallah ish edishtor. A man sends out his wife. And she goes out. And she marries another man. Then what? He says, Can the wife return to the first husband? Answer? Of course not. That would be what we call legalized prostitution. Send out a woman, bring her back, in, out, go, back. So once she marries somebody else, she cannot go back to the original husband. 
You have prostrated yourself with many lovers. And Hashem says, despite halacha, shul elai nuhum Hashem. Return to me. Come back to me. So says Borei Olam, despite it's a violation of halacha itself. So it's a brilliant statement which interweaves the Pesukim from Devarim about marriage, about legal prostitution, which they engage in, with many, many lovers, but, God says, come back to me. Despite all that you've done, you're the Sotah, and throughout Yirmiyah also you'll find other references to Sotah as well, and over here the author of this un- unknown author tells to us that you drank the bitter waters of my Mamarim, that I was a Sotah, that I did in fact prostitute myself, and therefore I tasted the bitter waters and the poison. Rabotai, we should all merit to see.